Hey Loga Geeks, Ian Paget here. And on this week's show, I'm chatting with Colleen Gratzer about designing brand style guides and how you as a designer can go from being an order taker to being the expert that solves problems. But before we get into that, I want to give a shout out to FreshBooks who have sponsored this episode. At the time of releasing this podcast, we are days away from the end of the tax year when a lot of us will be filing our self-assessments, doing our tax returns and so on. And this happens to also be the best time to change your accounting software so that you can start the new tax year with a fresh start. Definitely take a look at FreshBooks, which is designed for creative professionals. So the interface is beautifully designed and very easy to understand, making it really quick and easy to see all of your income, expenses, pending payments and so on. I encourage you to take a look for yourself with the free 30-day trial available to all listeners of the Logo Geek podcast. To claim that, just head to freshbooks.com forward slash Logo Geek, making sure to enter Logo Geek and how did you hear about us section. So on this week's podcast, I'm joined by my friend Colleen Gratzer. We actually met through the Logo Geek community and of all the people I see commenting and providing advice, she always comes across as one of the most knowledgeable and helpful in the group. And and it's because of that that I looked into what she's doing and I found her podcast and Facebook community called Design Domination, which is for aspiring graphic designers, uh, which is all part of a project of hers called creative boost uh, which is all to help graphic designers so uh, if that's you which it likely is go and check that out it's, it's well worth the time she also runs her own design practice too Gratzer graphics which she started back in 2003 so all of the advice that she offers is very current very genuine and helpful too Having had quite a few conversations with Colleen over the past year, I wanted to get her on to talk about a couple of topics that I know that you will appreciate. Firstly, for the first 20 minutes or so, we chat about brand style guides, which is the document that you'll provide clients after designing a brand identity to help your clients maintain consistency across the identity. I figured Colleen would be the best person to discuss this with as she's recently launched a fantastic brand style guide template, which you must check out. It's fantastic. So if you've never created a brand style guide before, this template will save you, uh, you know, days of work because it's uh, everything's all in there already. Uh, most templates like this use Lorem Ipsum for the text, but this actually has all of that pre-written. Colleen's done all of the hard work and she's included all of the sections that would typically be in a brand style guide template. So it will save you so much time. You can literally just take it, tweak it as you needed, and then use that as your template uh, for clients ongoing. Uh, what's also great about this is she's got versions for InDesign, Affinity Publisher, and Google Slides too. So it's a really solid template, and it's one of the best that I've seen out there. At the time of releasing this podcast, for a few days uh, afterwards, you will be able to get 50% off that, which is valid through to 
April the 4th, 2020. So it's the best time to check that out and, and purchase it so that you can save money on it. So to go and check that out and to learn more, head to logageek.uk forward slash brand dash style dash guide. For transparency, there is an affiliate link. So if you do purchase the template, you'll also be supporting the Logageek podcast at no extra cost to you. So it's a real win-win for everybody. So again, to go and check that out, head to logageek.uk forward slash brand dash style dash guide. The other area I was keen to discuss with Colleen was how you can go from being an order taker, so a designer who sits there and does exactly what the client asks, almost acting like a puppet on a string to becoming the puppet master. So the expert in the room who can diagnose the problem solve that problem and present the most effective solution. That's the dream for most designers. So I know all of the advice that Colleen offers throughout this podcast will be of immense value to anyone who wants to make that change. So let's get straight into this. Here is the interview with Colleen Gratzer. As I'm aware that you've recently released a brand style guide template, which is very impressive. I, I want to oh, ask a, a few questions around this. So mm-hmm. my first question for you, why should designers create brand style guides for their customers? It's a great question. Well, creating a brand style guide is important for actually a few, quite a few reasons. And one is that it really sets up the client for success. You know, so you've just created this fabulous logo and possibly these other design elements associated with it and along with the color scheme and typographical elements, right? And helping them understand what to do with them all, you know, that helps them continue on with what you've just created. And the second thing is that it really adds value to the work that you do, which makes them perceive you as more of an expert and you can charge more for that. And another thing is that, you know, it really demonstrates that branding is an investment. It's not just about creating something that looks good and works for their business and their audience. And it's not a one-time thing either. So it's really about continuing with those efforts. I mean, if their branding isn't consistent because they aren't sure, you know, what files to use for printing, let's say, or they're just picking colors haphazardly, that will kind of eat into, you know, diminish the work that you've just done for them that they invested in. And no one, you know, the designer or the client, nobody wants the client to end up mucking up the branding down the road. And the clarity and consistency that they'll get from that brand style guide, that builds trust with the client's audience. Yeah, I I believe a key part of a a successful uh, brand identity is consistency. Um, So there's definitely real value in uh, providing a, a style guide to your client so that they can um, ensure that everything is consistent. Mm-hmm. Would you be able to talk through what's typically included in that document? Sure. So at an absolute minimum, in my opinion, a brand style guide really must have the typefaces that have been used in the logo and they're going to be used for other materials and then the colors and the logo placement and then the files of the logo that are being provided. And I can explain why each of those is important. Sure. Now, the typefaces, especially if you've chosen, you know, open source and open type typefaces, like some of the Google fonts, you know, those are readily accessible to you and to them. They're free and they work on Mac and PC. 
there's just no excuse not to use them. <laughs> but I mean, who knows? For whatever reason, at some point, they may not be available to the client or even to all of their staff members. I mean, maybe something comes up urgently and someone there is working from home on their home computer and they don't have that typeface installed and, you know, they don't remember where to get it or whatever the situation is. So it can really help to list acceptable alternatives to those typefaces in the guide too. I mean, system fonts, just, you know, what system fonts would be acceptable, you know, if they don't have the preferred ones available, you know, or they might need to buy the typeface, in which case you'll need to tell them where to get it. And they might decide not to, or they simply have staff who end up not using the typefaces because they don't have access to them, you know, like I was talking about earlier. And I mean, you can always, you know, suggest these things to them and put them in the guide. It's, of course, up to them, you know, to put them into practice and follow them. And then with color, it's so important to include all the values. And I see so many designers not doing this, but I mean, I'm talking like four color process and then the coded versus uncoded and then Pantone colors and coded versus uncoded. And, you know, I mean, some colors don't shift much when printed on uncoded stock, but some really do. And they can really make for a nasty surprise for the client. And, you know, nobody wants that. I mean, a lot of yellows, for instance, will look orange on uncoded stock. And then some darker blues look more purple. I mean, what if a client is printing a huge quantity of something that ends up in a completely different color than they expected? You know, what you showed them on screen looks different. And of course it does. <laughs> you know, so one thing I have done when designing logos is send the client in the mail some Pantone chips to show them how their colors will look on coded and uncoded stock, you know, and explain the difference so they're not disappointed. Because I've even had a client once say, well, why isn't this as shiny or as vibrant, you know? as what you showed me. It's like, well, there's a difference in the paper. So they don't understand that. And I usually start with the Pantone coded colors and then match everything to them. And so then I look up the CMYK values for coded and uncoded stock and I see if they match or not. You know, if they're if they're really off, then I'll spec a CMYK coded and a CMYK uncoded. And then I'll do the hex and RGB values as well. And so then the other thing that you'd want to include, as I said before, was the logo and how that gets placed. And, you know, what comes as obvious to us definitely is not obvious to clients. So showing which color version to use on a certain background, you know, for instance, maybe they should use the reversed version of the logo on a dark background, you know, or maybe they should only use the full color version of the logo on a light background, or they shouldn't use the reversed version, you know, over a photo. You know, of course, we don't want them to scale it disproportionately either. And it will happen. <laughs> it will happen. You have to still point this out, you know, and we also wouldn't want them to send a low res web version to the printer. You know, so one thing I do in addition to that is I always list the files of the logos that I'm providing and I put them in folders and I'll put it like the high res ones in a folder called print. And then I'll put the low res ones in a folder called web. And that would also have, you know, SVGs and then medium res logo files for Word and PowerPoint purposes. So I name them that so they understand what they're for. And, you know, what's funny is that when I mentioned 
those logo files on my podcast one time, a couple designers reached out to tell me that they prefer that the client always come back to them for the logo files. But frankly, I'm not interested in that. And sometimes clients need things last minute. And I'd rather just have a guide that, you know, provides all that info rather than them having to come to me all the time. And, you know, they've got other designers and vendors that they're going to be working with who need those files too. Yeah, well, I'm I'm exactly the same. I yeah. I, I think it's good to provide a, a comprehensive kit of files so that yeah. they do have everything that they need for different applications. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't I don't think it's necessary to kind of let the client come back to you. I think that's ridiculous. Um, <laughs> give them what they need or the files that they need, and that supported that supporting user guideline document you mentioned, mm-hmm. so that they understand what they're using. Mm-hmm. And then like some other things, you know, the guide, if it's more extensive, it could also address non-visual elements, you know, such as messaging and tone and, you know, like mission, vision and values, that that sort of stuff. So, I mean, it could be even more comprehensive, but if a client has a smaller budget, I mean, just give them, you know, the minimum for them to get by, you know, but you can always do something more comprehensive, you know, where their needs warrant it. Mm. Something I wanted to ask you with brand guideline documents is when you're just creating the logo, and and I get this quite frequently because I I, I have quite a few clients where I've only uh, worked on the um, logo, mm-hmm. but they might still come back to me wanting some kind of brand guidelines document. In those cases, it's easy to work out um, and document, you know, things like the fonts and. Uh, any of the colors used. Uh, So pretty much anything that's within that logo because you've already created it. Um, But where it becomes a little bit more challenging is when you uh, need to add supporting colors, uh, supporting fonts, um, images, you know, any, uh, all the other things that you need to include to to create a a full brand identity. Mm -hmm. In that scenario, how would you advise to go about working these things out? Because the way that I've always um, advise my clients to, to do this is that I always feel like I need to actually work on all of these things first uh, in order to um, include it in, in a brand guidelines document. So for example, right. um, maybe creating a brochure or a website, um, something so that I have a, a playground to um, experiment with mm-hmm. fonts and forms and photography uh, so that I can see how all these things kind of work together um so i I think it's better to uh, work on that first and then document it um afterwards so that other people can get involved in the um brand and keep some kind of level of consistency across the board you know through all the the different touch points Mm. would you advise that that's the the best way to go about doing this or um are you able to create Um, a guidelines document that has things like color schemes, fonts and stuff like that without having already worked on something? Yeah, that's a great question. So, I mean, I have done it without designing other pieces, but I mean, I think it depends on how much you're creating too, because I've seen style guide templates that are like, really comprehensive. And they're talking about placing design elements in a certain position, say on on brochure covers, you know, like it's always a standard template. Maybe they just change out the photos. So there are situations like that where, yeah, you're going to have to, you know, come up with a sample, you know, up front before you can do that. But in terms of like just choosing a secondary color palette or 
discussing the types of imagery that's going to work for the client, you know, if it's photos versus illustrations, and then, you know, okay, what types of photos should we be looking for? You know, what types or what style of illustrations should we be looking for? You know, those kinds of things could be done, you know, without having to do that additional work. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, this, this is all about creating and setting the rules for their branding, you know, when you're starting with a new logo. And, you know, for a more extensive guide, you could create you could add those other pieces. And, you know, even if a client already has a logo, they may not have a style guide. So you could, you know, have a client that already has all of these elements together. And then you're just creating a style guide based on what they've already got because they need that consistency because everything's currently a hodgepodge, you know, for example. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's where that's where I really see the value of this type of thing mm-hmm. is uh when you start to get more than one person involved in in something it, it does become a, a bit of a hodgepodge right. and, and even you know if if you are uh just one person working on it you can still slip up and and have um inconsistencies like i've i've worked at, at companies for like a long periods of time and uh you know it's funny how uh, if you don't document it, you can you can use a shade of color, and then at some point you use a slightly different mm-hmm. shade of color, and there's that that inconsistency. And and brand style guides are there for that consistency. So when there's multiple people working on a project, you know exactly how it needs to be. And mm-hmm. as well, um, it, it helps people understand. Like I've I worked with a client recently. I've I've done the logo and packaging for them, and um, I've recently pulled in someone else to work on on the website mm-hmm. and. Uh, the the images that they that the uh, other person was using just didn't fit with the style mm. of it and and I know if I was to have documented that in some way it would have added a lot of value and and I think that that's that's where it becomes valuable is that that you can share that whole vision of how it should look with other people and you get that consistency mm-hmm. across the board. Right. And the more people that are potentially involved, like if you've got a client with multiple offices and locations, you know, and they've got a lot of staff, I mean, that guide is going to hold even more value for them. And so you can even charge more for that because it's that much more important for them to get like, you know, everybody on board. Absolutely. And whilst we're on this topic, I, I want to mention it as well, but I'm not sure if you're familiar with uh, spirit books. No. Um, I remember reading about them in uh, Eleanor Wheeler's um, uh, branding book. Um, I can't think what it's called, um, but she has a fantastic book on, on branding. Mm-hmm. And in her book, she mentioned about these spirit books. And um, I was lucky enough to work with LucasAid at one point and they released this a campaign called Yes. Mm -hmm. And we was given a a book. (laughs) I I was totally amazed. It was basically a hardback book full of uh, images, paper stock, fonts, wording and stuff like that. It's a little bit like um, a brand style guide, but it takes it that one step further. So if there's uh, campaigns out there that you're working on, if you have big budgets, like someone like um, LucasAid does, mm-hmm. you can do these books too. Uh, so rather than uh, actual, actually have like set in stone guidelines of mm. use this font, use this, mm-hmm. it's more like this is the look and feel and the tone and edginess of what we're trying to get across. So mm. if anyone is working on brand uh, guideline documents, spirit books is yeah another level to that so people can look into that interesting 
Um, I wanted to ask you as well, I, I mentioned at the beginning that you do have your uh, template for this. Um, mm -hmm. it, I haven't seen that many templates out there. Um, you recently created one and, and um, I mean, obviously people can create one themselves if they want to, but why I like what you've done is that it saves a lot of time. So do you want to just quickly explain to people uh, uh, more about the um, guideline document? template you recently created that people can purchase if, if they wanted something to start off with? Sure. Well, as you said, brand style guides are a ton of work, especially when yeah. you yeah. have never done one before and you've got to write everything. And, you know, especially when you're adding more than typefaces and colors and logo files and, um, you know, coming up with the color matches for Pantone and all the other stuff, you know, that takes a lot of time as does listing out the file names after you organize the files. And, you know, I found myself, you know, having to take portions of a style guide from a previous client that I had created and then modifying the text and elements for the next client's guide. And it was just so much work. I mean, and that's already like having done most of the writing. <laughs> so yeah. I figured that other designers must be struggling with this. And, you know, why not make a template with all of these sections already set up and then just modify what is needed for each client? And some clients may not be willing to pay more, you know, for a more extensive guide. So you just remove those sections, you know. And mm -hmm. when I looked at what was already out there, I found that most of them had, you know, lorem ipsum text and they were fully designed and like very artistic and they weren't so easily changeable to be specific to the client's brand and elements and stuff. And they they also had limiting licenses. Like they were either for personal use only or for only so many commercial uses. So I really saw the need to have something that was already written up, ready to go, because that's part of the problem. You know, the creative part, designing it to reflect the client's branding, that's the easy part. But knowing what sections to include and what text to put in each one is really where you get the time savings. And that really helps you show up as more of an expert to the client because they're going to expect that you know how to write this. And so the template is available in two versions. There's an essentials version and an ultimate one. And the essentials one includes the sections on color, typography, and logo. And then the ultimate version includes those two, but also expanded on in those sections. And then it has additional sections for imagery, design elements, and stationery. And then it also has suggestions that like suggestions for other sections that you could add in there that aren't yet written up, but everything in there is already written up and you just have to substitute the client's information, um, you know, where it's called for. There's notes everywhere to tell you. And, you know, I've seen some brand style guides that were close to 80 pages, if not more than that. And the ultimate version of the guide is definitely the foundation for a really comprehensive guide like that. And that's, that would be especially great for clients, you know, that have multiple offices and lots of staffs. But you know, both of these templates are available in InDesign and Affinity Publisher and Google Slides. And you get all three formats because I know some designers have, you know, jump ship <laughs> from Adobe and sometimes web designers and developers end up, you know, in this position while they're just working on a website and they're not likely using a page layout program. So uh, my, my goal is really for designers to take this and really up the ante as to what they offer and charge a heck of a lot more for this added value. And it will pay for itself the first time that you use it. I mean, I've charged a minimum of $1,000 for creating a, 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 a little bigger than a smaller guide, you know, and I mean, that wasn't even with the logo design. That was just creating the style guide. Mm. 
I know for me with what you've done um, here today, I don't have a um, an actual template, but what I like to do with everything that I do is have templates and processes so that yes. when I do put anything together, it's very quick. Mm-hmm. And I mean, uh, with branding manuals, I could sit down and I could create my own and I could spend a day or two working on that, or I can just at least purchase your one and, and use it straight, straight uh, from the outset. And, and to be honest, in, in the time that it saves me, I can, I can make that money back and, and, and more. So it's Mm -hmm. cheaper for me and, and more cost effective to kind of get a template that's really good, really solid. And I mean, I can still make it my own. I can still modify it, but it's just easier, especially since you wrote a lot of the text and, um uh laid it all out you've got everything in there you know i don't need to research things i don't need to plan it's just it's just there and and for me that that's where the value of it is and uh why i want to steer audience members if if anyone doesn't already provide this it's uh, uh worth looking at uh, products like this that uh have everything in already just to save you time yeah because they can change the text to whatever they like yeah, exactly. Whatever suits the client or whatever wording they want to use, absolutely. Well, if anyone wants to check out Colleen's brand style guidelines, head to locageek.uk forward slash brand dash style dash guide. And that's an affiliate link. So if you do purchase the product through that link, you support both uh, Colleen and myself with the Logo Geek podcast as well. So, um, and at the moment, you can actually get 50% off uh, with the code MARCH. Um, and that's through to April the 4th, 2020. So I'll include a link to that in the show notes as well um, for this episode. But again, if you do want to go and find that, head to logageek.uk forward slash brand dash style dash guide. Now I want to spend the rest of the time we have talking through what you're doing with Creative Boost. Um, so your podcast and community, mm-hmm. you're helping quite a lot of freelancers and creators out there really level up. So um, I've got quite a few questions around this and I know that it's a, a topic that you're quite excited to talk about. Yes. <laughs> so I think to start off the conversation, the um, first question I have is designers can easily be seen as order takers. I've been in in that place myself, you know, so someone will come to me, they have a very specific idea in mind and they just want me to create it. I'm sure Mm -hmm. other Mm -hmm. graphic designers get this exact same thing. I I, I think there's a lot of people out there that think that's what graphic designers Mm do, you Mm -hmm. know, to be order takers. Um, But obviously none of us really want to be in that situation uh maybe at the beginning you're totally okay with it but when you get a little bit more experienced um you just don't want to be in that position you want to be seen as the expert that knows what you're doing and that you can be approached to solve a problem and be trusted to find the most effective solution so my question for you is how do you go about going from um I, i guess a puppet on a string to be mm-hmm. seeing as more of an expert to potential clients. Being the puppeteer. Yeah. <laughs> the puppet on the string to the puppeteer. <laughs> yeah, it's a great question. And oh, I have so many things to say about this. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this topic always lights me up because I've lived it and I've gone from one end of the spectrum to another, you know, and I've been in this industry for 23 years. I have realized that you're definitely going to be treated the way that you show up. You know, 
if you think that you can't charge more, if you don't believe the value of your work, if you let the client dictate the sales process and the design process, then you will always be perceived as the order taker. You know, who's running your business? Are are they running your business or are you running your business? You know, you will have a miserable business if you let the client lead. The expert leads their business and the order taker is waiting to help with anything and everything. And again, I've been there, done that. So I'm speaking from experience here. (laughs) And, you know, a lot of this stems from mindset issues and self-limiting beliefs. I mean, they affect everything in your business. And Blair Enns said, you know, when you think like the expert, you will behave like the expert. And it's so true. It's got to come from within. It's the way you show up in your business, how you talk to clients more confidently, how you present your work, what you're willing to put up with, (laughs) and even the type of client that you attract. It all changes when you adjust your mindset. But you can't just like flip a switch and do that, right? You have to figure out where it's coming from. But I want to get into some things that designers can do to position them better as the expert. And the first thing is you've got to change the conversation. When a client comes to you asking for the price of a logo or a brochure or a website or whatever it is, don't give them the price yet. I mean, you can't. You could give them a a starting at price, you know, later in the conversation. Sure. But if you don't want your work to be seen as a commodity, it starts with you. So don't act like it's a commodity. Otherwise, they're just stepping up to the counter. They're asking for that burger and soda. And you're like, would you like fries with that? <laughs> you know, <laughs> so when when mm-hmm. when they come to you asking for the deliverable, you need to find out what the underlying problem is that they're looking to solve, you know, that because design is all about solving a problem. You don't yet know what's behind that request until you ask the questions. So first ask them why. Why do they need this logo? What does it need to do for them? And then you will find out the problem they're trying to solve. You know, nobody wants a logo, a brochure, or a website just to have one. (laughs) And maybe they come to you and they say they need a more professional-looking presence. But maybe a new brochure is not going to be the answer to that. You know, it's a branding problem they might have. And as the expert, you can have that conversation instead of just handing over a price for a brochure or whatever it is. And something else is, you know, how, how you present the work. Most designers don't actively present work. And, you know, I did this early on, too. But things changed when I was presenting it in person or getting them on the phone and then emailing it to them or making a Loom video and emailing it or doing a video call and presenting it then. And what this does is it gives you the opportunity to explain how your design decisions make sense for what they're trying to accomplish. If they have any objections, you're able to you know, take them into consideration or nip them in the bud as to why such and such wouldn't work. And if they say, well, I don't like the blue, you know, try purple, you can say, we're creating this for your audience to attract them. This isn't about anybody's personal preferences, you know. But if you're designing something and the client is like, why did you choose this color? And you say, I like it. That turns design into a subjective matter, (laughs) you know, as does asking. And I know you covered this on a podcast episode. You know, what do you think? (laughs) The client will be thinking, wait a minute, aren't you the expert? Why are you asking me what I think? You know, and when that happens, the client starts playing art director and now they're the expert. You just gave up all your power. 
and then they start cherry picking from this design and that one, and it just results in a mess. And you get farther from where you started. <laughs> I used to say to them, you might love that red oriental rug in your living room and that chevron pattern chair, you know, in the family room <laughs> and the Moroccan style lamp from your bedroom. But when you put them together in the same room, they don't work. It's just a mess. <laughs> so presenting without asking them what they think helps them understand that everything in the design has to work together. And again, it, you know, keeps them from cherry picking. And everything should always go back to the brief and solving the problem. That also keeps it objective. And something else a lot of designers do that is more order taker behavior is not getting money and a signed contract up front. And I see this all the time in Facebook groups. So many designers don't do this. And then they come back and they're like, oh my gosh, what do I do? I mean, you've got to get money up front. A certain percentage is fine, you know, and you've got to get that signed contract. This is normal business practice. If you think you can't do that, let me tell you, the experts, this is what they do. When you don't ask for money and a signed contract up front, it seems like you're not serious, like you're not a professional. And then something else is being at a client's beck and call. You know, I mean, I see designers that are letting clients call their cell phones and then email them and text them. And well, I guess everybody's using a cell phone nowadays. I'm using a landline, but I don't let anybody, I don't let clients contact me like five different ways. I mean, it would be maddening for me. I would go nuts. So I, you know, it's like limited hours. When are they allowed to contact you? When should, or, well, they can contact you whenever they want, but when are you going to get back to them? You know, and setting expectations. This is how I want you to communicate with me. And this is when you can expect to hear back from me. So, I mean, again, let me tell you, I've been guilty of all of these things at some point, you know, in my business. So I understand just how incredibly frustrating it is to experience these things because you don't feel respected, you know, and sometimes there's just an underlying reason for mindset issues that you have to address to really get over these issues. I mean, in my case, it was dealing with constant criticism growing up. I mean, heck, even into adulthood. And I was bullied in school too. So there was always like this, you know, you're not good enough or what you're doing isn't good enough. And it was, you know, it just, it made me, I guess it diminished myself. Well, it definitely diminished my self-esteem. And then, you know, it's like when you, when you are in that position and you're not, even though you're confident about your work and your skills, when you're talking to clients, you're letting them push you around, you know, you're letting them bully you. Yeah. Can I just add, I, mm -hmm. I'm th I, a lot of what you're saying as well, uh, one of the challenging things with implementing it is you can't just change one right. thing. Right? Like when, when we're talking about, um, for example, presenting based on objectives, you know, so we've understood what those, uh, what the challenge is, is uh, you, you've solved that through your work and then you're presenting based on mm -hmm. that you know you can't just present based on that if you haven't worked out what that is and and in terms of selling in that way you can't really sell in that way unless unless you presented yourself in that way you know through your website mm -hmm. your marketing materials and so on so I, I think that's probably one of the more challenging things is that it's it's not one thing it's kind of like uh once you've once you've kind of learned that uh, this is how you can be perceived as an expert, you then need to apply it to everything that you're doing from that initial yes. 
um, um, I guess your website, your your marketing material, whatever you're doing, through to the way that you communicate and speak to your client, through to the way that you um, initially do those d- discovery calls or mm-hmm. um, and and you know run through the the entire process down to the presentation and how you supply it. So I, I don't think it it's it's. I mean, obviously, mindset is one of the biggest things. Yeah. Um, I, I've mentioned that uh, when I spoke to uh, Cole Gray recently, mm-hmm. he mentioned about confidence, and um, I, I, I agree with that. You know, that is one of the big things, but it's because it needs to run through everything that you're doing. It's it, it's it can be daunting, but uh, I think it's the way to go. You know, if if you don't want to be um, an order taker or a puppet on a string, which a lot of designers do at the beginning. Yeah. I've been there, you've been yeah. there. There's probably listeners thinking, oh God, I'm, I've done that or I'm there now. To, to take it to that next level, you need to go through and kind of evaluate everything that you're doing. And uh, how would you advise like the starting point uh, to do that? Because the way that I would do it is update my marketing material first mm-hmm. and then and then go from there so the first client that calls you that's when you can change the way that you're selling and then uh, you know you can do everything ad hoc for that first client and then the next one you can follow that same process right it's all about having a good solid consistent online presence i mean if you're going to be doing any kind of branding work for clients, you've got to make sure your stuff is top notch and on point, right? You can't be talking about brand consistency and the reasons for good branding if you don't have that. You know, that just that discredits you. And so consistency is key there, too. And like I said, policies and processes, professionals have policies and processes. You know, here's how I work. You know, they're not letting the client dictate any part of that process. You know, they're, it's, this is how I work. If you want to work with me, this is how it is. Those are the people that get a lot more respect. Unfortunately, that's how it is. I mean, that's, you know, that's what happens. But yeah, you, you've really got to change your behaviors. Sometimes you, like you said, sometimes you have to change your behaviors before you change your mindset. But yeah, when you change your behaviors, you're going to change how you allow yourself to be treated. And again, that will, you know, attract a certain type of client. So even if you haven't made the mindset switch yet, you know, you're, it, is, it can still start working for you. You know, it's it's going to be a progression. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and I think you made a really good point then that I, I, I don't really think about because I just do it anyway, but having a set in stone process. Mm-hmm. Um, sets you down that that way of working as a professional Uh, because what I do with every client that calls me I say would you like me to talk through how I usually work on a project and I because it's the way that I work on every project I'll talk through what happens at what stage what they're going to receive Um, I I can also predict uh, time scales and stuff like that so if we're talking about um, turnaround times I can you know say typically this part of the process takes this length of time Mm -hmm. so just you know if you don't already have processes what Colleen said then is it's kind of absolutely fundamental that you add that in there. You you begin working as a professional. Um, you don't have to have a linear process, but I think right. presenting that you, you you have that step-by-step process, you know, that you run through uh, this particular system. I think that that sets you uh, from the outset as, as, as the expert. And um, 
yeah, like I said, you know, when it comes around to things like sales scores, you can have that conversation and and confidently mm-hmm. talk through how you typically work. Right. And something else too, and I see this, I have seen this many, many times, is that designers don't check their work. I mean, if they're... <laughs> If they are laying out a publication or working on a brochure, they don't always go back and check their work. Let me tell you, early on in my career, I mean, I'm very OCD about that stuff, but I'm sure I wasn't always that way. (laughs) But I remember a couple instances early on in my career where, you know, I'd send something to a client and it's like, well, you know, you you forgot to include this or, you know, something like that. And it was like, it just made me feel like so bad, you know, it's like, I should have picked up on that. I should have noticed that I should have just checked my work. You know, you don't want the client to feel like they need to babysit you, you know, well, you didn't, you know, you didn't make this edit on this draft and you didn't, you know, include this, you left out this logo, you know, check your work. I mean, it just, and it saves so much time. Like nobody needs to be nagged by the client and they shouldn't have to be doing the nagging. I mean, it's not going to be perfect and there's going to be stuff that just happens. But when you take that extra effort, you know, that really like extends your professionalism. Yeah. I I actually read through everything uh, three or four times now. And um, (laughs) we used to have this problem in uh, a job that I had about 10 years ago. We we once did a a catalog. It was like 200 pages and we had so many proof people proofread it uh they even did a competition around the company for like anyone that could find mistakes in this we gave them like a couple of hundred pound or something like that it was amazing how many how many um errors came Mm -hmm. back but anyway something that i learned from doing this is um when you read you can skip over words without realizing Mm -hmm. because you're reading through it and and uh sometimes uh you can actually have letters completely in the wrong order and uh, your brain processes what that word is. Right. And um, so what I find worth doing, especially, I mean, if it's hundreds of thousands of words, it's harder to do. But if if you've done a small document that's that's got a few paragraphs, read each word individually and kind of check it backwards as well, just to make sure, you know, like uh, I, I find it beneficial to print it out and go through, but look at each word individually and even read it backwards just to make sure it's spelled correctly. And then you'd never miss uh, or you're quite unlikely to miss a, a spelling mistake. Mm. Well, I actually used to offer proofreading because clients would hire copy editors and I would often find mistakes that they missed. Of course, I wasn't the one that had looked at, you know, four drafts or whatever of it already. So to me, it was fresh. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I used to I used to, used to actually do that. I'm paranoid about it because uh, when I was in school and college, I was picked up that I had dyslexia. Mm. Um, I don't think I did. I think it was more, you know, laziness growing up as a kid, uh, not, uh, you know, reading the books and doing my homework like I should have been doing. But um, uh, it's writing and and um, uh, words have always been a, a struggle for me. And uh, even though I now I can write quite well, I mean, that that's taken time to kind of hone down those skills. But you are right that it's, for for me, it's quite easy to make a mistake in in uh, my writing. So it's worth proofreading, checking, double checking um, more than once. It's the the same with emails, everything that you're doing. 
so many people send emails that are incorrect. Just reread your email, even if oh, it's two yeah. or three times, I, like I have to do. I forgot about the emails. I'm glad you brought that up because that's another thing. I mean, for crying out loud, spell somebody's name right, too. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. I just want to take a short break to thank FreshBooks who have sponsored this episode. As creatives, we like to spend our time designing logos and brand identities, but a lot of us spend more time than we'd like doing admin work, like creating invoices, chasing payments, logging expenses. And that's where FreshBooks can help you. It's an accounting software designed for creative professionals that will save you time. For example, you can create branded, professional-looking invoices in as little as 30 seconds. You can set up credit card payments right from those invoices too, meaning that your clients can pay faster. And when it comes around to tax time, you can export out tidy reports for expenses, invoice details, and sales tax to make working with an accountant really simple. Right now, I'm offering listeners of the Logo Geek podcast a free 30-day trial. To claim that, just head to freshbooks.com forward slash Logo Geek, making sure to enter Logo Geek in how did you hear about a section. Now let's get back to the interview. There's quite a high demand out there for graphic designers. And if you're looking for work, being honest, I think it's relatively easy to find someone that needs a graphic designer. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, if you was happy to take, you know, small amounts of money, it's easy to find someone that could use, utilize your skills. But the real challenge is, is, is finding those uh, clients out there that have money for starters, um, have a good understanding of branding and have a, a high respect for graphic design. So I guess what I would describe as a, a high quality client, which is the, the type of client that all designers want. How would you approach going about finding these, I guess, these these high quality clients? Well, you'll attract what you, you know, you'll attract what you're putting out there. So some of that goes back to mindset, but you know, like like we were talking earlier, you know, make sure your professional presence online, your website, social media accounts, and you know, any printed materials that you might have, that they're consistent and the design is tailored to your audience. You know, like what I mean by that is if you like script typefaces and you use that for your logo, but you're trying to attract corporate type clients, that says to them you don't understand them. You know, so you want to design for your audience as much as you're telling clients, oh, we need to design for your audience, you know. And I don't think it's necessarily always that only certain clients appreciate good designer branding. I think it's more changing the way that it's all perceived. You know, it's not art. It's solving a business problem. And clients, some clients don't see it that way. But when you frame the conversation that way and how design and branding can help their bottom line they'll sit up and listen. <laughs> Suddenly that's an investment and it's not an expense. And this is what, this will help you stand out too, but posting on social media, posting on your blog, talking about these clients' problems, you know, how you solved them, what their problems are, that's going to get you noticed because it's taking the focus off design and solving the problem. And everyone else is talking about, you know, Okay, you need a brochure. It's okay. How many pages is it? You know, is it going to be full color? Is it going to be on glossy stock? I mean, 
it's taking the focus off that deliverable and putting it on the business problem that you're helping solve. Mm. You mentioned then about um, speak, when you speak with your client about, I um, can't remember exactly how you said it, but you, you mentioned about changing the, the the bottom line so they understand that by having this, by investing in mm-hmm. this, they're going to make money from it. How do you frame that conversation so that, like, say if someone's come to you and uh, they need a catalog, for example, how are you going about speaking to them in a way so that they do transition from, um, I guess, coming to you with an order, like I want a 10-page brochure, blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah. How are you changing that conversation so they are understanding that, um you know, that they're going to increase the value of their business. They're going to do X, Y, and Z profit in, in order for them to understand that they need to invest a higher amount of money in, in that thing. That's a perfect example because I actually, (laughs) I actually had a client who came to me for publication layout and they're like, you know, we hate the design of this publication. We hate even like dealing with it, you know, it's very hard to read. They just, they were talking about all the cosmetic stuff, right? All visual stuff. And so I was like, what do you want to do with this publication? What do you want it to do for you? You know, and they were talking about, well, we would really like it to be more reader friendly. And I'm like, well, okay, why do you want it to be more reader friendly? I mean, of course I can understand why. I mean, It kind of sounds silly because I know the answer. Of course, you want it to be reader friendly, right? But there's got to be something else where where there's going. So I dig deeper. And it's like, eventually I get to them saying, we want to be able to increase our sales of this publication, you know, to be more consistent with like the sales we have with our other publications. I'm like, okay, great. So now it's not just about the look of the publication, it's not like, well, we just can't live with the look of this anymore. We just want a new design, you know? So now we have a business problem. We've gotten to the business problem. So I said, okay, great. So I'm going to charge you, you know, this much money for a publication audit and we'll have a deep dive consultation before we do the audit, right? So I said, okay, it's going to be this much and we'll set a date and have a, a deep dive consultation with this. And then we will go back to look at the publication And we'll actually like audit the publication. Like here's what we think needs to change in the publication in order to meet those objectives that we've just discussed here. And that we'll find out, you know, more about in the deep dive consultation. Fabulous. They were like, love that. That's great. Did that. Gave them the report telling them what we would change. And they said, great. How much is it to do the work now? Hmm. So that consultation that you did, Mm was that a a cost to, to the oh, client yes. so they paid oh, you yes. for that consultation oh, yes. a couple, uh, that's yes. amazing because I, I guess I guess what a lot of people would do what I would probably end up doing as well being completely transparent is I would try to um, understand that in that initial telephone call mm-hmm. I wouldn't realize that I could sell that as a, a, a potential uh, product so that you can gain that understanding and then turn that into uh, a product mm-hmm. I guess it's a little bit like doing brand strategy yes. you know where someone comes to you for the strategy you work out exactly what's needed and then following up from that that's when you can say okay this is where what you need is this this and this mm-hmm. exactly do you get much pushback with that type of thing because I mean like, I haven't in been that particular <laughs> scenario okay yeah because I I wouldn't I I would never have thought of offering that um 
at that consultation at that point because they they come to you they they need the 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 book redesigned i would probably scope out a, a cost of redesigning it rather than having that initial audit but that i guess that changes it 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 turns you into the expert like you said because you're charging to understand what that problem is so that you can diagnose what mm-hmm. the, what actually needs fixing and then you can uh price up a, a an actual solution rather than just doing what they said right and so, right yeah. and they have in-house <laughs> designers they could have said okay thanks for the consultation and the audit and the report we'll go ahead and have our in-house designers do this but they didn't they had us do the redesign it's, I, I mean, earlier when we were talking about being the expert, you also mentioned about finding out what that why is. Mm-hmm. Would you mind talking through how that conversation would go? So, for example, when someone does come to you, say they say they need a logo, so they come to you, I we need our logo redesigned. How does that conversation go when when you work with clients to kind of establish what that why is? Yeah. So the first, I mean, in the first call, I don't, I get into like what their goals are, asking them, why do they need this? What are you trying to do with it? What is your goal? Right. And so just keep asking why, why is that important? Why are you reaching out at this time? Like, why is this important now? When I first started asking these questions, I'm like, well, I'm sure I could just answer these in my head, but you like, you really want them to say it because when they say it, they're giving you like they're giving you the whole creative brief right there. That's what you can then say when you design that logo. You know what? When we talked about this earlier, this is what you said. This is where you want to go with it. This is what your goals are. This is how this design of this new logo is going to help you. You know, I mean, like I said earlier, it's like nobody's coming to you for a logo or a brochure or a website just for a new logo brochure or a website. And there's an underlying reason that they're asking. So just keep asking why. I mean, you could look at their logo and maybe it's horrendous and you're like, of course they need a new logo, right? But why do they need a new logo? They might say, well, we have, a, we have our competitors are, you know, we need, to com- we need to compete better and stand out more from our competitors. And they look more modern than we do. We look like we're antiquated. You know, so we need a new look or we need to reach a new audience. You know, maybe they are trying to reach a different demographic and so they need to rebrand. So understanding all of that, understanding those business problems, it doesn't matter what the deliverable is, whether it's a logo, a publication, whatever. It's always go, go back to the why. Just keep asking, OK, why do you need this? Why do you need this now? What would this do for you? You know. What kind of success do you want to have from this? You know, just keep asking why. Yeah, that, that's really solid advice. Um, it, it sounds so obvious now you point it out, but uh, <laughs> you're right. It, it's, it's important to really understand what that why is. And then you can really solve their problem rather than, uh, I guess, create something that could potentially be quite surface level. Mm-hmm. Uh, one question that does come to mind uh, with that is, um, say if... Uh, the clients come to you and they've requested a, a quote for a logo mm-hmm. but through that conversation you diagnose that they actually need something entirely different that's uh, potentially outside of their budget mm-hmm. would you put together a, a, a proposal for both of these so um, within that you include like a, a, a cost for a logo and and maybe the other thing that they actually need to, to solve their problem well 
you always want to talk money up front because professionals talk money up front. You don't want to spend days or weeks, you know, coming up with a proposal if they don't have the budget or expectation of cost, you know, if it's not, if they're not in alignment with what you would charge, you know, and I'll always ask their budget in the first call or I'll, and I'll word it as budget or expectation of cost, because if they don't have a budget, that's not my problem. They might not have a budget, but that doesn't mean that, you know, they're not willing to pay for it. But if they say, well, I'm looking to have this done for a hundred dollars. Well, okay. Bye-bye. You know, but if they're like, if they're like, well, we really don't know what this should cost, you know, how much should it cost? You know, what, you know, what are some price ranges? You know, I'll be like, look, this is like talking about buying a car or building a house. You know, are we in, you know, are we in the $500 range here? Are we in the $5,000 range? Are we in the $50,000 range? Like, where are we? Like, so, you know, I can tailor something to align, you know, what I would charge with where your expectations are, you know? And, they always, you know, they, the other thing too is that they're coming to you assuming they know what their problem is. And so like you were saying, you know, yeah, you after discussing something with them, you can be like, oh yeah, so their issue really isn't a brochure. It's a logo. They really need to rebrand. So yeah, I mean, I would, I don't know that I would be having that. I don't know that I would actually say that on the call or maybe I would, but I would definitely put it in a proposal. Like this is, you know, it's kind of like putting lipstick on a pig. I mean, or, you know, you can't even continue throwing money at the wrong problem. You know, you've got to address the core issue. I don't know. I think I kind of like, I maybe I went off on a tangent there. <laughs> mm-hmm. Did that answer your question? So, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. So, I mean, in terms of when you, when you, um, when you are asking about the money, how soon are you asking that? Because, I mean, obviously you're having that conversation with the client. You're trying to understand why mm-hmm. um, you you realize that actually they don't need what they come to you for. They need a, a larger mm-hmm. thing. At what point would you actually go about asking that money question, which, which you just mentioned, you know, expectations or cost or budget? Would you ask it straight up front? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So... And you, you know, if you don't feel comfortable asking that, you can always throw it in with another question. Like you can be like, okay, well, what are your budget and time frame for this? That's a good way of doing it. You know, you could do that. It's kind of like you're bundling it with another question. But I mean, yeah, but I ask it right away. I'm always asking, what are their goals? Why now? Why do you need this work? What are you, what is your budget and time frame? you know? And then I'm not going to go any deeper in that first call. That's just a screening call. I used to ask so many more questions. I mean, it was like, it was almost like I was doing discovery for free. And that's what most designers are doing too. They're asking so many questions in the first call. So a few years ago, I was like, I'm not asking these other questions. I'm putting that all in, you know, like the kickoff call. So that's mm-hmm. the only stuff I'm asking. Or, or like, yeah, or like like you said about if if you need to have a more in depth understanding, like the the book you mentioned about having that actual initial, uh, I can't remember what you called it. I guess a consultation in mm-hmm. the beginning. You then price that up and offer that as a product rather than trying to do that in the sales call. I mean, for me, I, I never really thought about doing that. I, I know, uh, obviously, when doing something larger like you know creating a whole strategy that's easy to work Mm -hmm. out as a a product but just just 
uh, I guess it's like a scoping exercise, charging up for a scoping Mm -hmm. exercise to understand exactly what needs to be done so that you can then work out how much it's going to cost. It's like them paying you to understand how much it costs. Yeah. uh, For for me, it's a bit of a... can't think Stretch? of what the word is but a bit of a game changer oh, okay. yeah it's 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 just it's, do it and it works out and you'll love it <laughs> yeah 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 absolutely well we've nearly done an hour so I'm going to throw in one last sure. question um so design is a very competitive uh landscape there's thousands of other designers out mm-hmm. there what can designers do to stand out well, two things major, and that is what we've covered with the questions. Ask those questions yeah. because most designers are not asking those questions. They're The client's coming to you and they're just expecting you to say, okay, this is how much it's going to cost. And the designers that are setting themselves apart as experts are the ones that are asking, why do you need this? What kind of budget do you have? You know, what are your goals? You know, all those questions that we talked about. And if you talk online, social media accounts, on your blog, wherever, and you just talk about those problems, it takes the focus off the deliverables. Everybody, all the other designers are talking about deliverables. They're not talking about solving the problem. Another thing is when you're talking to clients, whether it's online or on the phone, is Talk about the stuff that you want, the work that you want to get. Don't talk about everything because then you just get lumped in their minds as every other designer. Like you're that blade of grass in the field. You know, you just, you won't be memorable. But when you talk about something that you're doing all the time, like everybody knows you, Ian, for logos, right? That that's, You talk about logos all the time. You have a group about it. You have a podcast called Logo Geek. I mean, people remember you for that, right? I talk about accessibility a lot. I mean, I talk about that all the time on, you know, with my client-based business. So I get that kind of work. And I've become known as a specialist for that. You know, so you always want to talk about the work that you want. Don't be the, don't feel like you have to be the jack of all trades. Everybody else is being the jack of all trades. Yeah. You know, I, I learned this lesson, uh, quite early on. Um, I've worked a lot in web design. You have? I'm so surprised. I I had no idea. Yeah. 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 I've worked for, um, agencies for years working on web design. And, uh, there was a point in my career where I wanted to transition over to print-based work and I went for an interview I took my portfolio and obviously I thought the right thing to do is put in my portfolio in my portfolio or the the best work I've done and I went to this print-based studio for this job and one of the first things she said when she was looking through my portfolio was oh we'd love to be doing more of this type of thing (laughs) and I'm like no I want to do the stuff (laughs) and it just made me realize that what you show Mm -hmm. is what people think that you can do and it's what it's like you're going to get more of the type of work that you show so Mm -hmm. I don't show any of the web design work or any the animation work that I've done or any the illustrations or I've done so many things in in my career but all I show online now is 
is logo design and by showing that you attract more right. of that and I think that's what what graphic designers need to understand is you, you don't show all your best work you know if if, if you've done something for a big company and it, it, it it, it happens to be something don't just include it in your portfolio because it's a big company mm-hmm. take out anything that's not relevant only show the type of work that you want and uh, for me that that's literally changed my life mm-hmm. when people come to me they want the type of work I want and it's amazing right and I see all these designers I mean god bless them I see all these designers in, talking in Facebook groups about well I've got to go learn this other skill well I already know HTML I already know CSS now I'm going to learn JavaScript now I'm going to learn this and I'm like oh my gosh stop being a slave like just because like mm-hmm. this person this was a long time ago I saw this post by this person and he was saying um well, I can do this and I can do this and I can do this and I can do this. What else might a client ask me for that I should be able to do? And I'm thinking, no, you need to take the opposite direction. The train has derailed. Stop, stop, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm, go the opposite mm -hmm. direction. Everybody else is doing that. Like focus on one thing and get known for that. And it doesn't mean that you have to say no to other work. Like if you design a logo, Ian, and a client's like, well, now I want a website. If you feel like it, you can be like, heck yeah, I'll take that. But you don't have yeah, I to. Do. I, I do loads of yeah. things. I've, done, I'm, I've been working with clients on packaging and getting stuff in stores and other stuff. I just don't show Yeah, it. yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I, I always see what you promote as, as the starting point. And once you work with a client, if, if they like working with you, then then obviously you can offer other stuff mm-hmm. but it's it's just about getting known for something right. and and what you said about um you know people wanting to learn new stuff i found by specializing there's a lot more to a single topic than you can possibly ever imagine oh, yes. and i've been studying logo design for like the last like 8 years and i've read almost every single book there are still holes in my knowledge on the topic and i'm still learning stuff uh, not every day, but frequently that I wasn't aware of. And I still got more like the more like the deeper you go into a topic, the more questions that you end up having and and the more that you want to investigate it. And um, I've been amazed, you know, just by doing a podcast, I've done over 70 interviews mm. now and there is no I see no end to like the the topics I can mm-hmm. cover, the conversations that I can have because just one niche topic, there's so much that you can learn. Right. And when you dive really deep into a, a, into a particular type of work or even a type of niche, like even a certain industry, it's so much easier to, and I'm going to say this in air quotes, sell the client because you have that sp- you know, that specific knowledge that can help them and you understand them and you understand their needs. I mean, if you're always scrambling around trying to learn something new all the time, oh my goodness, that's a lot of effort. And I did it. Okay. I've, I've done that. You know, it is miserable. There's always going to be something and that's not going to be productive. And if, and if it's not productive, if it's not productive, it's not going to be profitable for you. You know, if you want to get a hobby and go learn website design and you're like, if you're a print designer and you want to like learn website design, great. But you could also do that as a hobby. You know, you don't have to focus your business around accepting everything, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I think as well, if if you was to choose a topic 
like say if it was logo design, I could then um, focus on, I'm going to use scores as an example, because um, a friend of mine, Craig, he he works in, in schools. You can, you can um, learn more, not just about design, but about an industry as well. So by working with schools and niche in schools, mm-hmm. Um, uh, Craig understands them inside out. Right. He's got a true expert knowledge on on schools, so um, he knows exactly what they need. He knows how they work. He knows how to have those mm-hmm. conversations because he has that deep knowledge of school. So um, you know when he's having a conversation with them. He understands what they're doing inside out. Mm-hmm. He just happens to be doing, uh, you know, graphic design for that particular niche. Right, and it makes your marketing easier because when you're writing blog posts or you're writing something on social media or whatever, whatever you're putting out there, you've got to know who you're talking to. You know, I mean, like my client business has been focused around nonprofits. You know, I could. I mean, I remember at one point on my website, I'm like, well, but I also have clients that are small businesses. So it was like, I was always writing, you know, if I was speaking to them, I would always be like, you know, your organization slash business. And it's like, this is so ridiculous. Like I need to like pick one (laughs) and really focus on it, you know, and nonprofits have different needs from businesses, you know, as like schools have, you know, they have their own unique needs. I mean, I can't talk to nonprofits about I mean, they could have a product, but I generally wouldn't be talking to them about sales and products. You know, I would be talking mm-hmm. to them about donations. You know, I'd, I'd use different terms. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, if you're talking to, you know, if you're talking to corporations, you're talking about, you know, you could be talking about shareholders. I mean, there's going to be different language that you use. And when you are speaking their language, they see that. And then they are like, you're the person for us to work with because you get us. And then it's like, you, it's mm-hmm. like, it's a, it's a shoe in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Well, I mean, I mean, definitely people should focus on being an expert, uh, not being an order taker, like you mentioned, and niching down is taking it to that next level because you can really understand the client and you can speak on their level, um, promote on that level. So I think in this podcast, um, you know, this podcast alone, there's so much advice that people can take to uh, really level up their skills, become the expert and um, hopefully charge more for their work as well. And um, I, I think yeah, we could talk all day. Um, <laughs> yeah, we've done over an hour now, so I think I'll wrap up the interview. But if anyone does want to like learn more from you, they can they can check out your podcast and um, you you got a Facebook group as well. But I'll link to all of that in the show notes so that people can find it. But Colleen, thank you so much for coming on. It's thank been, you. It's been great to chat. Uh-huh. I know that we could we could probably speak for another uh, number of hours. <laughs> so I'll probably have to get you on uh, the podcast at a later date. I'd love date to. Again. I mean, I, it's been an honor to be on. Yeah, thanks, Colleen. It's been great to chat. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, let myself and Colleen know by giving us a shout out on social media. I know a lot of us are self-isolating at the moment, but if you are listening, you know, take a picture of you listening, um, you know, make it fun. I, I, I'd absolutely love that myself. Um, I, I always like to hear from listeners and I know that Colleen will really appreciate that too. If you want to learn more about Colleen, head to her website, creative-boost.com. Alternatively, head to the show notes for this episode where I'll link to Colleen's website, social profiles, uh, books and resources mentioned in the interview, as well as a form 
more transcription too. To find the show notes, head to logageek.uk forward slash 73. Again, to find the show notes for this episode, head to logageek.uk forward slash 73. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, we did speak about Colleen's brand style guide. So if you want to go and check that out, um, again, this is an affiliate link, but if you want to go and check that out and support the Logo Geek podcast in the process, head to logogeek.uk forward slash brand dash style dash guide. And at the moment, until April the 4th, 2020, you are able to get 50% off. So it's the best time to check that out and purchase that product. And like I said, it's absolutely fantastic and I can highly recommend it, especially if you don't already have a brand style guide template this will save you loads of time and as you know time is money especially something like this putting a decent brand style template together like this could take you a number of days so it's it's a massive um, saving uh, in terms of time if you uh, if you are able to go and purchase that if you're keen to discuss anything mentioned in this interview with me, Colleen, and almost 8,000 logo designers from around the world, join the Logo Geek community on Facebook, which is totally free to join. And it's incredibly active, meaning that you'll get your questions answered, the feedback that you want, and the support that you need as a designer. So to find that, simply head to logogeek.uk forward slash community or search on Facebook for the Logo Geek community. On top of that, if you'd like to jump on group video calls with me and a handful of other professional designers every two weeks from around the world, you can do that by joining Logo Geek Plus. It's currently only $10 a month to join and you'll get access to a private forum away from the distractions of social media, um, access to a Slack group, as well as access to all recordings from previous sessions too. So if you want to go and check that out, just head to community.logogeek.uk. And when you first sign up, I'll also send you a Logogeek enamel pin badge, which is not available any other way. So that is it for this week, but I will see you the same time next week for another exciting episode of the Logogeek podcast.